and welcome to RadChat, the multi-award-winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to a bonus episode in collaboration with Prostate Cancer UK. My name is Naman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Jo McNamara. Hi everyone! So we're very pleased to introduce our guest, Dr Bunmi Olajide, who will be discussing his role as a GP or a general practitioner. Hi Bunmi, how are you? I'm fine, Naman. Thanks for having me. Would you mind just telling us a bit about your current role and how you got there? Yeah, um, I am currently working with uh, Prostate Cancer UK. I'm uh, one of the clinical champions uh, with Prostate Cancer UK. Um, I've, uh, before that, um, developed an interest in, in cancer uh, spanning o- over the past seven, eight years. Um, worked with uh, Macmillan and, and then subsequently the role with Prostate Cancer UK. So my interest uh, currently it's mainly around prostate cancer um, and um, a lot of my work is around um, increasing awareness amongst um, at-risk groups, especially black males, and ensuring early presentation um, to, to, to the GP. What made you want to be a GP? Interesting question. Um, uh, for me, I think uh, it's it split two ways. So being a doctor, it, it was easy. Uh, I, I think uh, growing up in a family where there are doctors, it, it was just quite easy to be swayed by the white coats uh, training abroad. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, coming to the UK, um, uh, and my initial interest was around sexual health. Um, uh, and then it was just about the same time I, I had my boy. Um, and I must confess, it really was a choice around studying um, postgraduate for seven, eight years uh, or studying postgraduate uh, for three years. And I guess you wouldn't know what the answer would be. But <laughs> I've always loved Especially with a young child. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, but I've always loved general practice um, uh, abroad uh, before I moved um, to the UK. Um, I was a family physician. Um, it's, it's quite robust. Um, and, and that um, law to be able to kind of see your patients um, as they progress through life. So you, you could literally be taking care of a baby. You do their six weeks check and then you're seeing them when they come with their own children. That's, that's the, the joint general practice. Yeah. Where did you train? So I did my uh, primary training in Nigeria. Um, uh, the University of Ibadan. Yeah. Is the healthcare setup quite different there compared to here? Just quite um, interested to know. Oh well, it is. It is. It is. Um, one thing uh, about the system here is um, um, it is free. That that for one, um, and a lot of countries over the world you don't get that. Um, um, so there is a lot of putting where you can. Um, help the, you can readily help the patient. Um, uh, Nigeria is a great country. It, it's a rich country, but it's still a third world country, and um, vast areas um, um, people are poor. And so, if you have a health service um, that is not free, and you have vast areas with poor people, you can imagine. So, there's a lot you would want to do as a clinician, um, but the services or or, or the the Equipment, so um, uh, or the means for people to get that is not just there. So uh, a bit tougher. It, it builds us. Um, you would see a lot of Nigerian doctors everywhere. 
we're great at what we do because we've been trained the tough way. <laughs> it's really insightful, isn't it? And I think um, it's very easy for us to take our good old NHS free free healthcare for, for granted, really. Um, I'm really interested in why specifically prostate cancer? Um, you know, was it specifically because you knew about um, the underrepresentation around prostate cancer for black men that interested you? Or was it just generalised that, you know, it was something you were seeing patients presenting with in clinic? Um, uh, thanks, Joe. So the underrepresentation was actually um, something I found out after kind of developing the interest. Um, the interest in prostate cancer um, was that knowledge around um, its prevalence in black men. So um, something really close home for me um, um, is the prevalence. It, it, it is one in four for, for, for black men. Um, and it was generally looking at this condition that impacts generally a lot of people like me. Um, um, and then that bit about knowing that generally it's difficult for us to present or, or see doctors and just looking at how I can help improve that. And, and that was the draw for me. Pardon me, um, I am going to give you an interview question. Okay. <laughs> what is a prostate? Where is it in the body? What does it do? There's a lot of patients I've spoken to with prostate cancer who had no idea they had a prostate until they got prostate cancer. So um, the prostate is an organ. Uh, it's a male organ um, in the body. Um, it's located um, just around the neck of, of, of the bladder. The bladder is the, the urine bag. So um, you've got the urine bag, which is the bladder, and then you've got a connecting tube where the urine drains to the outside. Um, and the prostate just sits around that connecting tube at the base of the bladder. Um, and what um, it does generally, it produces um, the fluid that the semen, um, that the sperm cells bait in. Um, and, and that's what the prostate does. Um, again, because it sits around the neck of the bladder, um, obviously, depending on its size and, and, and contraction and things like that, it, it impacts the flow of urine also. Um, so that's, that's the prostate in a nutshell. So you mentioned a little bit about kind of affecting urinary output. So, you know, some men might necessarily feel that they're getting up in the night and having to go to the toilet more frequently. What other signs and symptoms are there associated with prostate cancer? Okay, so one message I tend to get out always, and you, you guys might have heard this, is the first thing is, for a lot of men, there are no symptoms. And, 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 it, and it's important to really get that message out. Um, um, so for a lot of men, no symptoms whatsoever. And, and then um, talking about symptoms, you're right. Um, um, you, you, you talk about um, symptoms with the number of times one go to the toilet, and it could be with getting up at night frequently or even during the day. Um, because of the um, location also, there could be symptoms around what we call hesitancy, okay? So hesitation, hesitancy coming from that. So um, 
as a man, I feel, oh, I need to go to the toilet and then I get there and then I can't pee. I can't get the urine out. So I have to wait a bit and then it comes out. Um, the other symptom possible is what we call urgency. Uh, again, um, the, 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 the word kind of self-explanatory. So th there's an increased urge to go, to go past urine. So I feel like urinating and really, if I'm not at the toilet, I might just wet myself. Um, so um, that difficulty holding the urine, that urgency to quickly, to quickly go. Um, there is uh, the big, the, as I said, if it's at night uh, waking up, we call it nocturia, which is nighttime passing urine. Um, that's um, there. Um, less commonly, but also symptoms with the prostate, uh, what you could have is um, retention. So the, the man can actually pass urine. It's usually when the size is big or there's a lot of compression. Um, erectile dysfunction, so um, uh, a, a situation with the prostate um, could kind of present with a man having a weak erection or, or no, no erection um, at all. Um, so those, those, those are the symptoms you, you could get um, with uh, prostate cancer. As, uh, well, prostate cancer, as we're talking about a, a condition with the prostate in general. There's also another condition, isn't there? BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia. I might have said that wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah you pronounced that uh, perfectly right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <good>. <laughs> How <laughs> does that differ to earlier stages of prostate cancer? Um, not, not, not great. Not great. A difference. The, 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 the bottom line is just for BPH is just an enlarged prostate, but the symptoms can be similarly what you would have with prostate cancer. Um, so it, it, the, the difference is just, it's not cancer, it's just an enlarged prostate causing symptoms. So it can cause any of those symptoms we've talked about. So the frequency, going frequently, the urgency, um, the retention, the hesitancy, erectile dysfunction, um, it, it can cause that, yeah. I suppose that's probably one of the reasons why when people go to their GP and they're like, you know, maybe later on in life get diagnosed with cancer, they're like, why didn't my GP pick that up? It can be really hard, can't it? Because signs and symptoms can mimic lots of other things. And I think, especially talking to healthcare professionals, if, you know, the NHS is already compressed, if we did diagnostic tests on absolutely everyone who came to your clinic that you suspected might have cancer, um, there's no way that diagnostically we could keep up with that. Um, how do you kind of, how do you personally assess patients that potentially you might think are more at risk of having cancer that you would then go on and refer for diagnostic testing? Um, yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, I think one one statement you mentioned is part of actually the tool I use at more at risk. That's what you said. So um, there are. So in my day-to-day -day clinical practice, um, I'm really watching out for patients that are at risk, okay? Um, and we know the risk factors. So if I see a male who's coming to my office who's got a family history of prostate cancer, or uh, if a male's coming to my office and they've got 
a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, particularly if they mention the BRCA gene, so BRCA, um, uh, or generally if it's a black male. Now, we know the risk is two times more with black male, and it's a higher risk in those other cohorts. So irrespective of ethnicity, if there is a family history of prostate cancer, irrespective of ethnicity, if there's a family history of the BRCA gene, um, so even if they're not sure exactly, but they go, um, well, I've got family history of other cancers, I've got, and I, I then ask who, what cancers, and they go breast and ovarian, then those cohort of patients, um, are, I tend to manage slightly differently because I know the risk is higher. Then age comes into it. Now, um, for age, there are kind of specifics with the guidelines. Um, however, we know um, it, it's not always an absolute. So the guidelines would say any male over 50, um, oh, from work done by Prostate Cancer UK and a lot of other experts and looking at previous studies, now um, we're actually recommending that if there is a family history or if you have a black male, the age is 45, okay? Um, so th those are the things that would make me start considering, oh, this patient presented with lower uni urinary tract symptoms, so LUTS we call them. So all those things I've mentioned before about the frequency, urgency, either some burning, passing urine or, or things like that. Those are lower urinary tract symptoms. So this male patient presented and now they have these risk factors. Either 45 with a family history of prostate cancer, I will be investigating them a bit more and I will be thinking to rule out prostate cancer. So on the more at risk people i had the pleasure of going to a prostate cancer group specifically for black men uh, with errol mckellar one of the key themes around going to a gp was that they didn't want to have the invasive test to find out if they had any problems with their prostate is that something you've seen in your practice well for, for men generally and <laughs> what would say um so the, the invasive test generally will be um, a, a digital examination. So it's a finger examination. Um, and um, why that is done is just to feel around the prostate gland to see if we could feel anything hard or unusual or a bump on it. And, and, and the only way we can assess the prostate gland in clinic is in simple terms, sticking our hands up in the bottom. Um, and for a lot of men, it's, it's, it's not a pleasant experience and they'd rather not want that. So it, it's kind of a, a pushback for some men. Um, what we are saying, looking at that and considering that from Prostate Cancer UK is generally to say, well, if you've got a male who's presented having lower urinary tract symptoms, um, and you've sent them for a PSA test. If it's raised, then really you don't need to do a digital examination. It, it's, it's not going to change your management of the patient. If the PSA is high, you're going to refer that patient. 
Um, what I get from my colleagues in secondary care also is that irrespective of the GP doing uh, a digital exam or not, once the patient gets to their end, they are going to repeat the same test. So <laughs> imagine you've got this man who's not really wanting that test. Um, you've done it. The PSA is raised. You've sent them, and then the consultant is doing the same thing. So um, uh, our, our consensus statement now is saying, really, if the PSA levels are high, you don't necessarily need to do a digital examination. And it's definitely not a reason, is it, to avoid going to the GP? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not a reason to avoid. There, there will be situations where uh, um, a digital exam is really needed. Um, um, so, say, as I said, the man's coming fits in in that risk group, either age over fifty or um, you've started, you've done a PSA test. It's normal, and then you're thinking, okay maybe there, there are other reasons or let me check a bit more then there's a way we then speak to the patient to say really this this would need us to do a digital examination and that is ex explanation will be the, in the lines of it could just be that your prostate is big we just need to feel around or generally you've got a normal PSA test but we know in a small number of men even with a normal PSA test, they could have something wrong with the prostate and it could be prostate cancer. And it's just feeling around just to be sure we don't feel any bumps or hard spots. And yeah. Is there anything that can influence the PSA level and it doesn't have yeah. anything to do um, with cancer? So, um, there are a number of um, things that can. Um, so we kind of generally advise men to say, um, before the test, um, avoid um, anything that could irritate the perineal area. The perineal area is that that space in in between both legs, uh, the upper thigh. Okay, so um, bicycle ride, a long rigorous bicycle ride, um, uh, sex, um, um, or ejaculation, sex ejaculation. Um, um, short period before the test um, in the past we used to talk about if the man has had an examination of the back passage um, also but now we know that that examination has to be really uh, <laughs> intense for it to 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 impact the the levels so um, those things can um, generally uh, push the PSA levels up either uh, the other things that could um, bring the levels low. Um, so um, there's certain medications. Um, so um, finasteride, um, it's a, a, a common medication that's used when the prostate is enlarged, but also it's found in common products for hair growth. So some men use it um, um, when they are losing their hair. Um, and that kind of brings down the, the level the PSA levels so as a clinician I, I tell doctors generally to say if you have a patient who's got kind of borderline low PSA levels when you've checked and they are taking hair products finasteride or they're using it for uh, an enlarged prostate 
then don't simply just rest on those le low levels if if you feel that if that gut instinct is saying there's something wrong or if they're at risk then still kind of refer them can i ask about screening so essentially um you know we've talked about the fact that prostate cancer is very prevalent and especially as you do get older so why don't we have screening here in the uk Joe, that's an interesting question. Um, I wish I had the answers. Um, the, we, the, the truth of the matter is we, we've not got screening anywhere in the world. Um, what we've got presently is the PSA test, and uh, um, it's not considered a screening test. And, and that's just because um, you can have um, a, a normal PSA in, in, in a patient and, and they've still got prostate cancer or you have a raised PSA and, and they turn out not having prostate cancer or they turn out having prostate cancer which is not the aggressive type is a, a type they, they probably would have all their life and die of something different uh, so um but what kind of really helped us now with research is, is, is us having the MRI scan. Um, so the multi-parametric MRI scan, MPMRI scan, uh, they call it, and that's specific for the prostate. Um, and then the combination of a PSA test and the scan um, is getting closer to what we can term screening um, but yeah <laughs> great question uh, I, I think there's a lot of work being done and hopefully um, with awareness being raised with funding um, we, we would get a, a test that would help I think it's difficult when it comes to screening because it gets compared to other screening programs which are just slightly different um, if you don't have a prostate can you still have a high PSA? So if the prostate's totally taken out, um, yeah, um, good question. And, and I'm actually thinking around the possibility of it being high. Um, I, I, I wouldn't think so. I, I think if that is happening, then there might just be some aberrant um, PSA-producing tissue um, somewhere else in the body and it's um, it's not something that can't happen um, um, you can have aberrant tissues anywhere around the body so um, and, and then they just start producing certain hormones so yeah that's possible um, but really I, I would expect that if the prostate is out um, yeah um, then there's nothing producing that PSA yeah when it comes to prostate cancer and screening as well, how can we support the LGBT community better? Um, I think it's really engaging. Um, there's um, a lot of engagement work that is needed for, for kind of the underserved communities. Um, uh, there's, there's the need to reach out. Um, there's the need to kind of um, break those barriers um, and, 
case, a lot we um, talk about now about health inequalities and inequities. So um, it, it's really engaging those communities. One thing I've learned generally with um, trying to do work with black men, for example, is they, I, I get a bit more involvement and I think it's just generally they're seeing before them someone that looks and speaks like them um, and someone who would experience uh, a condition the same way as, as, as they would. Um, and, I, I, and I think the same should apply. So with the LGBT plus community, it's, it's first that our messaging and everything should make them feel reassured that they they are part of the whole body. The same way that the messaging has made black men feel you're part of the the picture. Once that happens, we get engagement on their side, and and once there is engagement, you can then get someone within that community who you would work with, who then does the rest of the work. Um. There's a lot we need to do around engagement and 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 and, and breaking down stigma and and, and 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 making people feel comfortable um, to to speak out and be heard. Do you think that potentially having a black man as a GP is going to facilitate more men, black men, to come to their GP and kind of talk about their health? Um, or do you think it is around kind of representation in media or do you think it's a bit of both? I, I, I'd say um, I'd say a bit of both um, and it's not just um, a, a, a black man as a GP I, 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 there are one thing I've learned kind of working with PCUK is the number of um, um, charities um for black men, um, and it's it's just kind of yes, that seeing it is a black man as a GP, but also it is a black charity, um, um, religious bodies um, uh, specific to ethnic minorities. Um, um, so that does help, and then the the media coverage, um, you know. One thing we've noticed is kind of because there's still a lot around stigma and, and um, around prostate cancer within the black community, um, even when you have uh, black men who've had a diagnosis, it's been difficult in some situations to actually get them out. So, um, for example, John, um, John Tombo, uh, uh, he'd come out um, and we could see the impact. Um, um, so I'm sure they would be kind of well-known, kind of respectable, popular black men who have been impacted by prostate cancer, either having prostate cancer or someone close. And it's how many of them we can get out there you know, black men who are role models who can come out there and talk about black uh, and talk about prostate cancer, 
or, or the impact it's had, had on them out in the media. And that, that could change things also and, and get black men more engaged. But me, you talked about stigma. For any of our listeners who might be from a more privileged background and don't understand what that means, how would you explain it to people so they understand what different cultures face when it comes to stigma? So, um, uh, there is um, always, well, no, uh, I, I, I retract the word always, but a lot of times um, there is this um, link to spirituality when it comes to disease conditions. And cancer is huge in the black community. It, it, it is huge. And um, in some quarters, um, it, it, it's seen almost a cost. So, oh, um, I, I don't deserve it, or, or I've had this because I've done something wrong, or um, in some quite, um, quite traditional African communities, um, it could be, oh, it, this has been placed on me by someone. Uh, someone's done some voodoo or a course and placed it on me. So um, it, it is seen that way. And, and you can imagine how it, difficult it would then be to talk about it because it then demonstrates some weakness. Um, it's either the weakness um, in saying you, you've not prayed hard enough, that's why you've had cancer, or or you've kind of um, offended someone wrongly and so they've caused you. Um, um, also, cancer being huge is seen as always a terminal diagnosis. Okay, so part of the message I try to drive in is if it's caught early, it can be managed. But generally, in, in a lot of black communities, you hear the word cancer and they're already thinking the worst case scenario. Um, there's no cure, this person is just going to die. So there is huge stigma around, around it. And uh, a, lot of men, um, a lot of men would rather just not talk about it or want anybody to know about it. Yeah. I suppose linking to that as well is kind of mental health side of things. Stereotypically, um, people identify as male, or at male at birth, we don't like to talk about our feelings and things like that. And obviously with November and Prostate Cancer Awareness Month and around mental health, obviously you've got Movember, which happens as a, a campaign. How can we encourage more people? I mean, you don't have to all be fluffy and interpersonal all the time, but how do we get people to open up about these worries and fears and moving forward? Um, I think there is still a, a, a lot we can do in that aspect. Um, I, I watched a, a documentary um, with, with the Prince, um, William, um, talking about mental health. And um, I had patients who had seen that documentary and literally that's why they came out. Um, it's, it's breaking, um, what's the term I could use now? So that, that, macho feeling that feeling that i'm the man and, and so i'm i'm super human i can't be seen as weak is breaking it and when you then see someone 
like Prince William and even the footballers he brought to on that tour, when you then see them being open and being able to talk about how they can be impacted by mental health, and then you, you, you're able to reflect and think back to say, well, actually, that's, that's someone I, I consider a, a macho man, and, and he's talking about it, um, yeah. Um, it's also men talking about it generally, um, um, and it starts with talking about it in comfortable environments, so what I mean by comfortable environments are um, so generally where we feel, oh, I can't talk about this because I can see other men around me and, and I'm talking to other men. And it's starting there and gradually being comfortable about getting it out to the wider environment. So um, the particular male groups, um, you know, um, talking amongst friends, um, um, talking amongst siblings, um, and, and you just gradually just 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 build that up. Um, it's it's it is difficult for men, um, but what we're seeing is is getting less so difficult, um, especially when we see. Um, um, documentaries or, or talks from from other men um, um, opening up about how they've gone through through situations. Yeah, I think there's positive um, generational changes as well, isn't there? With kind of education within schools and colleges and universities in terms of providing that support for everyone who might need um, mental health interventions. But I also think as well, it it's societal. Um, and hopefully over the years things will become easier so when you're at the football game it isn't a bad thing to necessarily say do you know what I'm really struggling with my mental health at the moment and it's not something that people would necessarily hide so hopefully that will change. Can I just ask about kind of your role as a GP for patients who've had treatment so um, we get lots of patients through RADCHAT coming to us and, and obviously through Prostate Cancer UK, who've maybe had cancer treatments for um, their prostate cancer and then have side effects as a consequence. And sometimes five, 10 years later, as a GP, how do you kind of support patients who have gone through the entire pathway, but then are experiencing difficulties with late effects? Yeah, um, so uh, there is um, within general practice, um, what we call a cancer care review um, and I'm touching on that first because um, um, years past it used to be a cancer care review one year after a patient had a cancer diagnosis and that's it so a lot of support and follow-up for men um, was in those times mainly in the hospital and there wasn't much really for the GP to do um, in the past few years, um, um, the push is such that a cancer care review is done on a yearly basis. Um, it's managing cancer as you would manage other chronic health conditions. We have yearly reviews for diabetes. We have yearly reviews for hypertension. Why not for cancer? With developments in 
in healthcare and in medicine, we're seeing more men, more women, more individuals living longer with cancer. So, um, so that review, we have affords that opportunity to actually then have these discussions with men. So it's, it's a whole, an holistic approach. You're asking physical symptoms, psychological symptoms, um, social impact of cancer, you're looking into their finances. Um, so those discussions are held. So um, I, I would say for any of the men listening, that, that discussion they can have with their GPs during those reviews. Now, outside those reviews, um, it's again just speaking to the GP. Um, the support from primary care um, is much more improved now um, because we are working better um, as a multidisciplinary team. So, um, primary care now, you would have a lot of. Um, other healthcare professionals and not just your typical GP. So within the practice, um, you can have your nurse specialist, you can have your clinical pharmacist, you can have your physiotherapist, dietitian, care navigator, social prescriber. Um, um, and also um, charities, for example, MacBailin have developed programs um, where you can signpost patients for support with certain complications with cancer and PCUK also there's a lot of information on the website and with the nurses so by seeing the GP um, patients can be signposted rightly um, they can be signposted to the right service to offer those supports and if it's something that can be done within the remit of primary care also because we now work as a multidisciplinary team those support can be offered so if it's incontinence, for example, and a patient in even a pad, then we've got our district nurses. If it's um, the, the pelvic exercises, then we've got our physiotherapist. Um, if it's erectile dysfunction, we can prescribe tablets. If it's not helping and it's beyond that, we can refer to secondary care. So it, it's just or those co-ops of men, it's really working as a multidisciplinary team. Um, it's everybody involved in supporting. Um, and, and, and then the mental health part, uh, as we said also, um, that, that support can be given also. But me, you talked about Prostate Cancer UK, so we're very lucky to be collaborating with them for this episode. What projects are you working on with them at the moment? So... Um, it's, it's been, um, it's been the best 18 months of my life, uh, honestly, honestly, it's, um, it, it, it's kind of looking at how much I, I, I've been able to do in, in this period. And, uh, a lot of that work is, it's with PCUK and, and the opportunities they've offered. But what's most fulfilling for me is they've kind of helped create that avenue where I could reach out to men in general. So um, if I go back straight on your question, um, 
there is the stratified follow-up uh, for for men. So men who've had a diagnosis of prostate cancer, they're stable, um, and they just need these either yearly or six monthly follow-up reviews. Um, um, and that I'm still working on that and um, and hopefully um, get that to be fully engraved in our local patch because what these men are having to do is have their follow-up with the hospital. Um, the aim is to bring that to primary care, really. Um, and it would link in with the question Joe asked about following up men who've got complications and things like that. Because a lot can be done in general practice. It's closer home, reduces the burden on the hospital. You know, a man just goes in and all they have is a blood test and the consultant says your PSA levels are still within normal range. We see you in another year. You know, that, that can be done in general practice. So that's one bit. And then um, the bigger project is kind of what I mentioned earlier um, about um, improving presentation, early presentation, uh, uh, black men, and, and increasing, improving awareness within the black ethnic communities. Um, so those, those are the two um, main projects that I'm doing. Can I ask you a controversial question off <laughs> the back of that? Okay, yes. He loves asking these. <laughs> Um, like it's it's really refreshing to hear a primary care clinician wanting patients to have their follow up in prim like in primary care in the community where they live. That's what we would like to see. What would you say? And you can be as polite or as rude as you want to the clinicians who we work with in oncology across the world in the UK, who don't want to let go of their patients and want to keep bringing them back every six months, every year to the hospital when they could have their blood tests closer to home or something like that um yeah I, I think the way to what what i would say is that they kind of need to think uh, of this as us kind of reducing their work i don't know if that would help a lot but one is reducing their work now also um where uh, uh, a stage now we're talking about kind of preserving the environment you know um, reducing carbon impact um, a, a lot of this patient travel miles and miles to get to the hospital and then they struggle to get parking at the hospital um, you know that carbon footprint of, of getting in the car and things like that can be most GP practices are really close to the patients, you know. Also, when we talk about continuity of care, um, so generally the GP sees more than just the um, what that one organ for the patient. So if the patient is going to see a prostate specialist, it's all about their prostate and their PC, uh, PSA. We see which other medication they're on we've known this patient for ages they're probably more relaxed being around us um so r really it's putting all those um into consideration I, I i don't know why some of our colleagues would still want to 
hold on to. Um, I could think of one or two things, but yeah, as you said, it could be very controversial. <laughs> so I'm not going to say I'm not going to say that. But yeah, it's just um, I think generally, if if we all think around the patient, so rather than oh, this is something for secondary care, we want to keep it because it helps us in this way or that way. Or, uh, oh, it's for primary care, it helps us in this way or that way. I, I think we all should be thinking around the patient, what do the patients want? And uh, particularly around stratified follow-up, um, what we are hearing is patients would want it more closer to home. And that, that's either with their primary care physicians or a combination where you have um, remote so remote monitoring where the patients don't have to 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 actually leave their homes yeah i would definitely agree with that getting parked at my surgery is much easier than getting parked at the hospital where my oncologist is it's just a nightmare so yeah absolutely and you you would need to pay at the hospital you don't pay for packing at the surgery exactly cost of living crisis is it's real isn't it um, you mentioned a really good point there around um, general practitioners having maybe more insight into patients' other comorbidities. Um, do you feel that GPs utilise the opportunity when they're seeing patients who maybe are presenting with signs and symptoms of, of anything, to be fair, but that wouldn't usually visit their doctor? Do you think we're utilising that opportunity to talk about public health talk about kind of mental health um, I appreciate time is limited with your GP but I just wondered whether your experiences of kind of diagnosing men with prostate cancer allows you an opportunity to also make a positive impact on maybe other comorbidities we recognize the links with heart disease diabetes you know those conditions potentially with some social um, prescribing could be improved and lessened. Is that something that you actively do and that you see your colleagues um, in the community doing? Um, so what I would say, Joe, is we can do better. And I, 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 I'll be open and honest around that. We can do better. Um, so health promotion is high up there um, within kind of primary care. Um, um, and it has to be opportunistic. Um, um, so the expectation generally is if I'm seeing my patient for this one condition, somewhere, somehow, during my history taking or examining my patient, I probably would identify something else that I can improve or help the patient with. You're absolutely right about this 10 minutes. Um, uh, as a GP for many years, and I've been doing this many years now, I'm still asking myself how they came about that 10 minutes uh, as an appointment time for GPs, um, because it's just really limited. The good, thing, um, uh, uh, the good thing that's happening now is that um, we know for some um, general practitioners, they're moving to 15 minutes. Um, it's a small group, but moving to 15 minutes. Others are moving to 12 and a half minutes. Um, uh, also, with the advent of the PCNs, the primary care networks, 
and, and this multidisciplinary type of working, what can happen quickly or swiftly is I could be seeing the patient and then they're telling me about their smoking history. So I know that increases their risk of cancer. Um, and even if I don't have the time there, I can then tell the patient that um, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to speak to our social prescriber, we can offer support. And that is happening. Or uh, the patient calls the practice, not even seen the GPs yet, and they're seeing a social prescriber or a care navigator. So that is happening, but we can do better. Thank you for being honest. I think we all agree on this episode, and hopefully all of our listeners, um, that yeah, we can do better. And that's what we're striving to do, especially with this episode. When we were coming towards the end of the episode, do you have any top tips for patients, professionals, students who are listening? Um, top tips around uh, prostate cancer. Uh, one for, I'll, st- I'll start with profes- professionals, my, my colleagues, and, and also training um, doctors. Because um, uh, I'm, I'm a GP trainer myself and a program director, so I always talk about kind of what the guidelines are around the PSA test. Now, uh, it is clear um, for asymptomatic men who have come requesting a, a PSA test, what we should be doing as primary care physicians is kind of highlighting or discussing the pros and the cons and then letting the patient make an informed choice. Um, and I, I, I would want to plead with colleagues that we keep it that way. Um, what, what I've observed um, is, and I actually had that feedback when I've done a presentation recently, is there's a tendency to almost talk more about the cons, or the risk of sepsis and the risk of not finding cancer, rather than the pros, you know, we, we should keep it open and then let the patient make a decision. Um, the second thing is for an asymptomatic man who's within the at-risk group, please do, ni- do not deny them a PSA test. Um, um, allow them to have the test if they are requesting and they meet the criteria, okay? So over 45 black male male with family history, over 50 every other male. Um, and really, even as a clinician, if you're worried, and even if it's, uh, if I have a 40-year-old male who's got a family history of BRCA-positive gene, and one family member has had prostate cancer, that's two risk factors. Um, I'm, I'm not going to stop them having a PSA test. It's controversial, but I'm just saying what I will do. Those are perfect. Thank you so much. It's been very insightful and hopefully for our listeners, giving them things to consider for the future. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Namajal Kansin and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflective questions we've posted, along with the links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the form linked with the podcast. Thank you for listening and take care. Thank you.